0: Uh, welcome everybody to episode 59 live from my drum room. Today we are doing the Drums of Charlie Watts part two with two very special guests. Uh, you might remember part one. I had Richard King, uh, an old friend and vintage drum man from uh, Annapolis, Maryland, and uh, someone who's who's known Charlie for a long time and sold Charlie a lot of his vintage gear. And also Don McCauley charlie's drum tech for about the last 10 years who's now out with the stones um, as tech for steve jordan so we're lucky to get don to join us today it's a day off on the stones tour and uh this worked out perfectly so i'm really excited to have these guys with me today i want to have a uh, send out a special shout out to everybody watching from the charlie watts appreciation page on facebook uh, the page that I started a couple of months ago that I'm proud to say we've reached has hit 4,000 members as of yesterday or the day before. We're 4,000 members and and growing. So that's exciting. Um, and that's in spite of the spammers that I keep kicking off. So uh, even with that, we're still over 4,000 members. So thanks to everybody who's joined that page. Um, it's great to have such a uh, a great group of people in there that that, uh, you know, love and respect Charlie so much and, um, are so interested and eager to learn about him the way, you know, I see so many people in there. So thanks for, for joining that, that group. Um, really appreciate that. I want to thank everybody also for watching my show with Sean Pelton, uh, earlier this, or I should say last Monday, I guess it was last week, beginning of last week. It was a great show with Sean. So thank you. And to everyone who's continue to watch these shows and subscribe to the YouTube channel and my podcasts. Thank you for that. Um, last thing I want to do. Uh, last thing I want to do is just send out a quick clarification uh, on something that Richard King and I spoke about last time on the part one of this show of the uh, drums of Charlie Watts. Uh, we Richard had mentioned Charlie endorsing uh, Peisty symbols and having a sort of uh, brief or limited endorsement with Peisty. and uh, I just wanted to take a second, you know, to sort of clarify that. Um, I spoke with Charlie many times. Anybody who knows me and knows my history knows that I worked for Zildjian for many years, uh, twenty-four years, and that's when I met Charlie. It was about twenty-five years ago, and um, you know, really more as a fan than anything else. I asked him about his history with Piesti because I was curious. Really about the sound of his cymbals on on so many of these records, and he didn't have a a real clear recollection. He did say he did use them, uh, you know, at different times and at some point, but um, wasn't he couldn't clearly rec- you know recollect on which records he played what. But he was quick to point out that he never officially endorsed them. And he made some, this is, this was early on in my relationship with Charlie, probably about 25 years ago. I remember us being together and just him and I talking and I asked him about that. And I told him, I said, you know, I, I, I'm just, it, I'm taking off my Zildjian hat when, when I'm asking you about this. And it's really more, you know, as a fan and, you know, I I just would love to know, like, was that a Paiste symbol on this record or that record? And, um, and, You know, as I say, he couldn't remember clearly what he played on what, but, but he did say that something to the effect of, um, you know, I know they say that I, I know they say that I'm one of their artists, but I'm really not, you know, I've, I've played them, but I don't endorse them, something to that effect. So um, really out of respect and love for Charlie, I wanted to just clarify that Um, because I think if he were still with us, he, he would want to make that clarification and only because he really never endorsed any company um even gretsch drums which he played from 1968 until you know last year or this year he never really officially was an endorser though i can i think he considered himself a gretsch drummer and he had over the years built and developed a relationship with the people at gretsch but you know he never signed an endorsement contract with them. He played whatever he wanted to play. And uh and that's what I I love the most about Charlie and I think so many people love the most about Charlie is he was so true and so genuine and so um you know just just he was his own person when it came to that, you know. Uh so I wanted to make in fact if you look at this this Piesty profiles uh ad from or from their profiles book from 1972 he's listed Playing Heyman drums. And I'm absolutely certain he never played Heyman drums. So, you know, it's one of those things where, um, you know, I think it's, I think there were some liberties taken and I'll just leave it at that. Um, So that's it. That's all I wanted to say about that. Uh, Got a lot of great stuff to talk about today. And I don't want to take up any more time personally because my two guests have so many great things to share with everyone about charlie so uh, without further ado i'm going to bring on don mccauley charlie's drum tech and richard king live from my drum room room episode 59 and here they are live hey johnny hi boys welcome to the show it's our returning champion don mccauley (laughs) I'm just bored. <laughs> something to do. No, I, I I appreciate you doing this on a day off. I know you're on a yeah. you're on tour, so
1: this is a, it's a great thing. It's really cool that what you're doing, and uh, and it, it is. It's really it's really obviously unfortunate, but it's a really great way to honor Charlie.
0: Oh, thanks, yeah, Don. I, mean, I appreciate yeah. that. And and I you know and, and Richard, I I appreciate you you know reaching out back. You know, whenever that was a, a few weeks back and you said, hey, we should we should do a show about Charlie's drums, you know, and we've we been doing all these other tributes and, you know, remembrances and, and what a great idea to, to do something dedicated to his gear. So thank you.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Was that, was that a team effort?
0: Team effort. Yeah. Well, got the two best players in the team right here with me today. So, yeah so where should we where should we start off guys where would you where would you guys like to sort of uh jump in or or kick it off
1: well it seems like richard you were on a roll earlier you know the, the first one uh with some good stuff yeah. some really really cool information stuff that you had done so it seems seems fitting that you just continue okay some of that yeah, yeah i yep.
2: kind of want to bring up you know chooch uh chooch mcgee um he's the one that kind of brought us all together and uh and he kind of uh made all this possible in a very disconnected or connected way just a long series of the chain of events you know there's this wonderful book called road work by uh, uh tom mitchell uh, uh, and uh, tom wright i'm sorry and it, it features uh chooch there's a chapter in here dedicated to chooch mcgee uh when he passed away and this is this is chooch's chapter and it's a good read for if anybody wants to find it. Roadwork. It's all about the roadies, the famous roadies. And uh, and uh, Don is the, the next generation of famous roadies. So <laughs> it's good to have him here, man. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And there's Chooch. And I. that's in Philadelphia back in, like, uh, I would say 1997 or 1998. Cool. And uh, Chooch, uh, Chooch was a very busy man uh, because he had not only did he have Charlie's drums to tend to, but he also had to take care of uh, Ronnie Wood's guitars, and he also watched over Mick Jagger's guitars. So he had a lot of draw- jobs to do. And whenever I would talk with him, he would call me up or whatever. He was always busy, busy. Hey, Rich, I gotta get to go. I gotta go, Charlie. You know, Charlie's doing this, Mick's doing that. And he's just a very, very busy man, you know. And they really had him <laughs> running from one end of the spectrum to the other because he, he, even when the Stones were on tour, were not on tour. He was always busy taking stuff to make at his house or going to Ronnie wood studio or helping Keith out with something. And, uh, he's just an amazing guy and, uh, he did it all. And the funny thing about, uh, Chooch is he really wasn't a musician. He could find a bang on the drums a little bit and twang on the guitar, but he really didn't play. And, uh, so he would always find people to take care of various jobs for him. And, uh, and that's how I came into the picture, you know, the uh, the Rolling Stones got back together in 1989 to do the Steel Wheels tour, and they hadn't toured at that point for about five years, and so they had made up their mind that uh, they were going to get back on the road. And uh, by this point, uh, Chooch became the stage manager for all the road crew because, uh, or the crew chief. I'm sorry because uh, up to that point, Ian Stewart was the crew chief and in charge of all the boys, all the lads' equipment for all those years. And When Ian Stewart passed away in 1985, by de facto, the next guy in line was uh, was Chooch. And you can see him in a lot of the old videos of the Stones playing, running behind Charlie or handing a guitar to Ronnie or whatever. He's a very, very busy guy. And so he was always looking you know, for things to get done. And uh, that's where I call came in. He called me in the March or may of 1989 and I wanted to find a, a bass drum to replace the one that they'd been using. And uh, so I, you know, myself, I'm kind of the guy that, that people call up. I do a lot of work with celebrities they want to find certain things or get certain things done or repaired. They call me up. I'm not really a drum builder. Um, I'm not really a fabricator of anything like that, you know? And um, so I, I contacted a guy named Ward Wilson down at Atlanta. Pro percussion, and I've got some pictures here of, of Ward, uh, and we sent him a 22-inch Gretsch bass drum. Um, and these pictures just came up. Was, I, I mentioned Ward in the last video, and he sent me all these pictures that I'd never seen before. And so it was really grateful to see those. And uh, there was pictures of him uh, with the uh, with the drum when it was finished, and there's also a picture of the drum before he did any work to it. It was just a champagne sparkle round badge bass drum, and he uh, refinished it in the natural maple finish. And, uh, and that bass drum basically sat behind Charlie for many, many years, uh, for many, many tours. And uh, it got used on a couple of recordings on the Voodoo Lounge Tour, got used on some recordings uh, where they did some, they set up a little drum kit in the hallway, in the stairway. And they set the bass drum and the, and the snare drum. That kit was, that kick drum was used. Uh, so it got used for a lot of different things. But also in the, the Voodoo Lounge Tour, they started doing this concept where they would have like a B stage out front that's ward right now ward wilson and that's what the drum after it was all finished and cleaned up and and uh he'd filled in all the holes it had extra holes from different tom holders and stuff in there and then he refinished it in like a really pretty maple and that that drum got a lot of use you know mm-hmm. and uh I'm really glad to see that uh, that he i'm really glad that ward provided all these photographs and uh from that point on um we, we were on contact to do a lot of things. Now, what happened also is when we delivered that drum to uh, Charlie in the in the fall of 1989, when they were doing rehearsals for Steel Wheels, we also brought some other drums with us. I brought a Gretsch green sparkle drum kit, and I also brought a couple of snare drums, and Charlie ended up buying that green sparkle kit. And uh he just absolutely fell in love with it. He wanted to use it with his uh, with the big band, with the, the, the orchestra, the Charlie Watts Orchestra is what we wanted to use. And um <clears throat> he really uh was really excited about it. And so after he bought it, I took it back to the shop and uh, he chooch called me up about a week later and says, Hey, Charlie wants all the hardware done in gold, 24 uh, karat gold, you know. So we sent <laughs> every bit, every piece down to nashville to a place called advanced plating and this is the only piece i've got left um there's the snare drum from kit from the kit when we put it together and as you can see it's just a green spark with just a perfectly stocked uh, snare drum and we had all the hardware done in gold and charlie was so so tickled with that kit that he ended up uh having a suit made to go with it and i think you've got a picture of that in your uh of, of the Charlie with that suit. And he says, and he sent me a photograph from that session. And uh not too long after that, it was featured in a in a magazine uh in England called Rhythm Drum Magazine.
0: Oh and yes, I yep.
2: Posted some pictures of, uh with that, and uh and they did a big spread on it. You know, they had a, a photographer come in there and do all these photographs, and uh so before that was sent out, I was sent this thing, which was uh, autographed by Charlie and sent to me by Chooch to uh, commemorate that that drum set you know <laughs> and okay cool. and i don't think he ever really got to use it you know I, he was i asked him why he didn't use it and he basically said that it was so pretty that he was afraid that something was going to happen to it that he he just wanted to lo- he just loved looking at it and i think he even brought it to his house god forbid uh of course <laughs> it didn't stay there <laughs> and, uh, and he, he just never used that kit. So I have this little gold plated T rod, Gretsch T rod, that's left over. And just in case we ever needed it.
1: <laughs> oh, and
2: wow. that was the green sparkle kit, you know. And all along uh, during this time, I would get calls from Chooch for all kinds of stuff like drumsticks. It didn't have an endorsement then. Now they have that Vickreth endorsement. But at the time, they were only using these old Ludwig 11S drumsticks. And uh, he basically, sent me around the country looking for 11 s drumsticks and uh, we would find boxes of them at different music stores because they were still making them at the time of course so yeah. we'd buy up as many cases of those as we could get and so that was basically my job was to basically supply chooch with whatever he was looking for you know uh the other thing that he was looking for and and i'm really and maybe don can answer this question is in 1985, on the last tour that they did, and I can't remember the name of that tour, it's uh, the one with Beast of Burden, um, he was using Rogers memory lock cymbal stands, and he had a Rogers hi-hat. And it, the Rogers hi-hat that he had with that kit at that point was an older Rogers hi-hat, because I can see in the pictures that they had a memory lock clamp, uh, I mean, sorry, like a hose clamp from a car to hold it from sliding it down, because those stands were notorious for stripping out, you know, if you used them a lot. And so somewhere between 1985 and 1989, when I met him, he had switched over to the Gretsch Techwear stands. And Don has had a nightmare with those things, <laughs> you know? <laughs> we
1: remedied and that Don, situation, yeah.
2: yeah. yeah, And Don had to actually get the uh, tilters made for them because the tilters would just snap, you know?
1: Yeah, they broke Ooh, right we, off we, at the middle of a rehearsal, one of the, the original Techwear, because it was, it was just cheap white metal. You know so, he, yeah, he went to China one time and we were at rehearsals in a big like Wembley Arena or something and mm-hmm. just went to whack it, and the whole thing came straight down at him, sheared oh right off and right towards him. So, we had uh, is it Mike uh, Dorfman, I think it is, at Trick, had him yeah, yeah. Re- recreate the uh, the top ratchet part, um, in air- airplane aluminum so it didn't break, so it just would not break.
0: Oh man. I had about God.
1: twenty-five of those made, and Mike gave us a just you know amazing turnaround and uh, and just mashed them up perfectly so that I didn't have to worry about that anymore. Thank God.
0: Wow. Yeah I yeah, I, I think I remember you telling me this, Don. And 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 I can tell you I, I was working in the 80s, I was working retail when um the techware stuff came out. It came out, it was made, I think, by the same company. You guys might remember, Richard, you might remember um, North drums, remember the North drums that had the, the, um, uh, <laughs> elbow shaped fiberglass shell and they made hardware in the early eighties. And it was a, it was a sort of an attempt to compete with like the Tama Titan, which was the sort of standard of the industry at the time. And it was a low, a low cost alternative, but yeah. it was white metal, as you said, Don, and, yeah. and we would sell these things at like maybe half the price of what a Thomas stand would be but sure enough, people come back with the tilters having snapped right off. Hi hat stands, the footboard would snap in half, yeah. and 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 I remember seeing the first uh, renditions or incarnations of the Gretsch techware, and it's, and it, I think it was made at the same factory in mm-hmm. in Taiwan in those days. And um, anyway, I, I so I can totally see where you're coming from with the tilters yeah. just failing, you know. Oh,
1: well, they were awful. I, <laughs> I I think Rich sold uh, and. Um fellow down in Rhode Island there. Rich, you probably know his name. Oh, uh Aldrew's Music. Yeah. Yeah,
2: good Aldrew's Music. Yeah.
1: Dave, yeah. right, Dave right. Drew, you know, yeah. Yeah. All those that came back, I've seen boxes and boxes of them. Some brand new, some mm-hmm. uh some used, and all of them show wear and tear right where it's gonna snap. And sure mm-hmm. enough, I mean sitting there with you know JB Weld, and that just doesn't just doesn't do it. <laughs> it just doesn't do it. I don't mind yeah. repairing them, but I'd rather it not to not to think about it. So yeah yeah
2: i'll never forget well, flying into chicago with uh two flight cases with about eight or ten of those techware stands new in the box and i brought them to chooch and he's like great put them in storage and they disappeared from wherever. <laughs> exactly they yeah. I don't, <laughs> yeah they're probably still in the in chicago somewhere floating around that stadium
1: <laughs> i have seen. no there we there there are there are boxes of brand new ones and yeah and used and used as well yeah yeah that
2: never wanted to change once he got hooked on those tech wears. Nope. Yeah. Not changing them. Right, right. Never wanted to change. Yeah,
0: I, that That's interesting too, that, that um, I, I remember seeing those on the kit at one point and I was surprised that he moved away from the Rogers, uh, Swiv-o-matic stuff because that he loved that stuff and it was so good that Rogers stuff was made so well, you know, but yeah. Yeah. And that's still I,
1: held up. That's actually at the exhibition. Uh, yep. oh, that I nice. set up the exhibition for the uh, in the studio part for the stop sign <clears throat> badge kit. That's yeah. what I used over there for those. Yeah, You,
2: you I know, the fact about those is the Rogers memory lock stands that Charlie used. He was very fortunate that the tilters didn't break on those because they were just these thin little quarter 20 rods yeah. that would snap off. I get them all the time that they're broken, you know, and I'm amazed that Charlie didn't break any, but I don't think he really used that memory lock hardware that that set that you see for very long, you
1: know. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Not very
2: yeah. Long. yeah.
0: yeah.
2: And so somewhere um, in there, you know, he switched over between 1985 from to 1989. He still used that old Swibomatic, the original hi-hat that he'd had all those years, mm-hmm. and that hi hat still in the exhibition uh setup, if I remember correctly. And when I, I met
1: him sets, yeah.
2: Yeah, when I met him, he had switched over in 1989 to the uh to this, the memory lock version of the Switomatic hi hat had this clamp here. And yep. that basically became his go-to hi-hat for the rest of that time. And between Dave, Drew, and myself, we sold him probably 20, 30, 40 of those hi-hats still in the boxes, you know. Go
1: I've I've maintained all of those and 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 made sure <laughs> that they're little rubber gaskets, they don't hit when you when you release the hat. Yeah. And, and just the replacing the having to replace some of the springs yeah yeah but they, sure. they're solid i think john bonham used them as well i think they're very yep. very solid yep. I, I use them in my studio they're they're awesome
2: they're fantastic hi-hats they play yeah. really they really do yeah. and the clutch was the best of the best these clutches i see them on so many even people who didn't use the rogers hi-hat they would use this with clutch because it's a great clutch really yeah it. yeah <laughs> So that was, uh, that's basically what happened with the hardware. The Speed King, as everybody knows, he never stopped using Speed Kings. And I only have one story about the Speed Kings, and I looked everywhere for my photographs. But in 2002, Mike Cormier, who was a drum tech for Charlie, right after Chooch passed away. Chooch passed away in the summer of 2002, and by August, um, Mike had taken over. Mike had already been working for the Stones at that point as an assistant. And he became the drum tech for Charlie. He contacted me in August, saying, "You know, he was freaked out because Charlie was having a conniption because his only, his favorite WFL Speed King that he had had broken the footboard had snapped in half, and he was just like besides himself." So I, I went and found all my receipts because I keep everything, and I found the FedEx labels from when Mike shipped that Speed King down to me in Maryland, and then I shipped it to a gentleman in Texas named Jim Petty of JP Two Creations. Who's no longer with us unfortunately he died this year but jim was able to take that that footboard and somehow weld it back together because alloy is almost impossible to weld as don well knows you can't really glue it either you know and somehow he was able to alloy the glue the alloy back together that footboard and shipped it back to me and then we shipped it over to uh to canada from 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 annapolis from maryland and it cut, must have cost like about three or four hundred dollars in overnight shipping fees bouncing back and forth between the, the three of us, you know. And uh, by the time it got to Charlie, he'd already gotten used to the pedal that they pulled out of storage, and he was playing that. And I don't know what happened to the fixed pedal, you know. <laughs> but, Yeah, it's a funny story. You know, it's it
0: somewhere. Yeah, it's yeah, somewhere. you probably have it in a case somewhere, Don. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm betting. You know,
2: world's most expensive Speed King pedal, man. It must have cost. Yeah. Four ship,
1: yeah. You know? I've rebuilt a handful of those and usually would have about four on hand ready to go. Mm. Um, but uh yeah, 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 they're they're and the the ones that he used in the last handful of years were were rebuilt and making yeah. sure that they're extremely solid. Um but yeah. Yeah, yeah I've never the seen version it. the later version of the of the the link clamp, uh, the link. Oh, so yeah. the, the older ones are I think uh 2 and 7 eighths or yeah. or Make like that was yeah. three, and the new ones are two and seven eighths. So we yeah. made sure that the ones were the two and seven eights eighths, sort what we were using. They were real
2: thin, very easy yeah. to wear. Amazed, he got as much light as he did. Because when I got that footboard, I would never seen a speed king where all the lettering and all those those grooves in there were worn completely smooth. I've yeah. never seen anything like that. And all the speed kings I buy, I buy hundreds of speed kings. I've never seen one so worn out like
1: that. Man, it was unbelievable. Oh, he was- he was moving on that. He was, yeah. his foot was, his foot was just dancing and kind of always just moving on there. Even if he wasn't, even if he wasn't laying into the bass drum, he was just feathering yeah. like a, a lot of jazz guys do. Just feather yeah. that bass drum yeah. on on every uh, quarter note uh, or, or more. And but he would be very powerful too at, at times. But yeah, he, he wasn't he wasn't always um, super heavy with his foot. He just danced and accent it like a jazz player. Yeah. Yeah.
2: and he's a heel down player if I remember correctly both on the hi-hat and the bass drum pedal not right.
1: always no no no, not always no, no. No. no he no sometimes certain songs certain eras other times and he'd feet. be picking up and dancing and his feet would be up in the air whatever <laughs> Fred, yeah whatever you know like being the yeah. Fred, Fred Astaire of drummers Yeah, yeah right right yeah. he was a yeah, dancer yeah
0: I was just well, going to say I remember him telling but, me we, we were talking about of course, symbols at, at, at some time and uh, I mean I, but I didn't always pick his brain about symbols, but I, but I would try to and I, and I remember him telling me something years ago about uh, and Don, you know this full well and I'm sure you do too, Richard that yeah. um, at the time I didn't he said basically every symbol he'd ever had and and cracked he still what he said to me is i I've kept them all yeah. he said, I have them all and I just thought, man that would be such a treasure trove to go through. Mm and 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 don you've had that opportunity right to like go through a lot of his old symbols and, and- many times many times
1: over and and recataloging uh moving moving his collection moving his gear uh, yeah recataloging looking at every single piece of gear uh that he has mm. uh, and 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 putting him into a, into a into a year, you know, putting them into categories of certain yeah. things played. That, that's still ongoing. It's 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 going to take a quite a while to, to
0: yeah
2: get together
1: yeah. correctly. Do, do you still have
2: all the China type symbols, the U.F.I.P. China's that you, China said he broke? Because he broke a million of them. Right? Yeah, yeah.
1: He broke one per tour at least. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, every we've been touring for the past nine years. Oh, there's a that came out of where the black uh, the stop stop sign badge black nitron kit that came out of that case uh, Mm -hmm. along with a bunch of other symbols right there but uh but the chinas yeah you know we've been touring pretty heavily for the past nine years uh you know five months a year um and and he'd go through quite a bit of symbols always just always put them away and always you know label them same with the drum heads label them per year and when they were removed when they were used that's cool
0: now, Don, this symbol I, I have I'm sharing right now. That's mm. a China, or that's a ride symbol. That's a ride.
1: That's a flat flag. little ride. Yeah, I'm sorry, it was so random with these pictures. It was like last minute. Here's a bunch of stuff, John, and take a peek. But
0: that's <laughs> no, a this is, wow. Yeah. It's a sound creation, I think. Right? Yes. Pisces sound creation. Twenty inch.
1: Yeah. Next year, and, and I'll it, give you the, next year, I'll give you the picture of the top of the symbol. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be waiting for it. <laughs> a flat wow, I, top is not it it is a flat it's a 20 inch
0: flat it's a 20 inch flat okay um no this is this is gold because this is the stuff that if it wasn't for you like having a peek at this stuff and you know this is the sort of mystery stuff that people wonder about you know what i mean it's it's um um and and i know i i think you sent me pictures of of like peisty chinese as well as ufip chinese that that you found in Yes, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of
1: psi uh different psi things. You know, I through the years I believe, you know, it's hard to say when people say oh he used this from this period to this period and this this year or this month until then. I think maybe in the photographs you see that a lot. And that's how you can kind of determine that, but all along they did so many recording sessions and so many off gigs and rehearsals. I know with my experience with Charlie that he'd want to try different things. So I can only imagine, in the '60s, '70s, '80s, '90s, he'd want to do the same thing and try different things, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's—I think—that's a big part of why maybe Sky Blue Pearl Tom showed up with the with the Black Nitron is just let's try it. It sounded great on the recording. Yeah, they were just down the street, you know. Yeah. They were down the street recording, so why not go grab some stuff from from the locker, you know?
0: Yeah, I could um, totally, you know, I, know, I totally agree. Really, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's only mm-hmm.
1: a couple of people really that know the the ins and outs of what was happening in the session. Um, yeah. I've talked yeah. to Ronnie Wood quite a bit about some of the recording sessions that, that that he was part of, and and Keith as well. It's just hard, but it's hard to get a definitive answer. Even Charlie, you know, it's hard to get yeah just uh, yeah. exactly what happened because they weren't thinking that in those terms, right?
2: Exactly. Oh, yeah. they, did, they did a ton of sessions and a ton of j- gigs. Yep. How can you possibly remember every one? Sometimes it,
1: yeah, sometimes they just show up and there it is and play and yeah you know, and then go back and, to your life. And
0: you know what I and I've often thought too, and I wish i had I talked to Charlie a couple of times about Jimmy Miller, but not a lot. Um, but I wish that I'd thought to ask him how much influence Jimmy had on his sound, like as an as a as the producer and a drummer. And I I think Charlie would be very open and honest about saying, Well, it was Jimmy's idea to use Ludwig Tom with the with right. the Gretsch black drums yeah and right. and and I'm guessing maybe maybe Jimmy came across some of these peisty cymbals in another session and said hey Charlie you should try I, I don't know I could be totally wrong but I think Charlie was was um as you say he was he was going for a sound he wasn't yeah. going for what it said on you know mm-hmm. whatever the instrument was I think he he wanted the best sound he could get
1: If you think about a a phrase that comes up a lot in the studio is the studio has no eyes, you know? (laughs) So there's a lot of things that happened there that uh, some people documented and some people didn't. And there's a lot of things like that for sure. He trusted Jimmy. I've talked to him about Jimmy Miller and he trusted his judgment a lot. Um, Yeah. And, you know, sometimes Charlie wouldn't be at that session, you know, uh, for days and Jimmy Miller had to be there. So maybe the ton of gear showed up and, I, the, all speculation. Mm. There's other there's people like uh, there's other people that we know about some of that. Mm. I've gone yeah. through a lot of photographs from the archives. Um, mm. I need to do a lot more of that. Mm. A lot of questions get raised, and then you can kind of piece them together, you know, with a photographic
0: evidence, or whatever. That that's a good point. So so Don, you came into the picture almost ten years ago. I remember 2012, yeah. gearing up for the 50 and counting. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I know, you know, you and I have talked about this, but I think it'd be great for you to share with everybody what it was like for you to kind of step in at that point And with, uh, a guy that we all know and love as being so, um, not meticulous, but, but meticulous is a good word, but like, you know, he, he had his set way of doing things. So how was that to come in and, and, and honor that?
1: Uh, it was amazing. I mean, I had worked with a lot of drummers before as a tech and also being a professional musician drummer. I'd come in kind of understanding what he might want to do, but it's every person you work with is, is a new venture. It's a new, uh, new situation. So a lot of admiration for Charlie early on. And I had done some research, but you know <laughs> about who he is and as a player, uh, but also just taking it uh, fresh a fresh set of years for a set of eyes you know what can I learn on the spot today and not think about what happened in 72 or whatever um, yeah. yeah and uh, it was pretty amazing to see what he did and how he played but then to start talking with him about vintage drums which I had had a passion with for several years and my dad is my dad has as well um, to start talking to him about that kind of aspect of drumming was amazing so he picked up on that i was a drum geek and i picked up on he was a drum geek <laughs> and we were off off and running for years you know i mean for half the year of per year for for nine years straight we just um, talking about drums um, yeah. and he didn't want to get bored with what he was using at at the time or what he's using now but he was he was really interested in what was what the possibilities were, what the possibilities were for maybe his jazz setup. He was talking a lot about let's try something different for a jazz setup. Mm -hmm. And we'd go and do a a little sit-in or something with Tim Reese and those guys. And let's try this. Let's bring this down to the gig. Let's try this snare. Let's try, you know, Mm -hmm. so that kind of stuff happened a lot. Um, And different things came into the picture. Throughout the years that I worked with him every year, he had me restore a lot of drums, all of his stones gear for the exhibition and also the blonde kit for the stage. Um,
0: That's huge. He trusted right he
1: trusted me to do those things because I'm a custom furniture builder and a drum restoration guy. So yeah, it, it, I didn't try to convince him to do these things. He just took interest in me and I had major interest in him, you know? Um, so his admiration and, and I, I think he trusted in me that I do the best I could. Um, and I always use the word with him preservation instead of yeah. restoration. And yeah, I, I think he liked, liked the idea of that. Um, he didn't want to change anything, he wanted to just maintain what was happening. Um, yeah. So it was incredible. It, it really yeah. was incredible. And like I said before, it's going to take a lifetime to understand everything he's taught me you know, about everything, about drumming, about you know, everything,
0: everything. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's heavy. That's so, I don't know if that
1: answers the question. I don't know.
0: No, it absolutely does. And I, and I just want to add to that, that it's that I I think you're being humble because he, he trusted you so much. I mean um, I, I certainly got that when I'd be around you guys. I mean, it, you, you would have thought, I, I mean, I, I remember meeting you that first time in 2012 and you, you would, you know, you would just stepped in and then a couple of, well, I guess six months later, I saw you in Boston mm-hmm. and it was like, you'd had the gig for 10 years. And then a couple of years later, it was like, you'd been there forever. It really was. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, there was yeah. just so much of a connection between you guys and so much trust. And and just like you said, the fact that he let you preserve his blonde Gretsch kit, which is like, mm-hmm. right. I mean, that's, that's huge.
1: That's it- it really needed it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. knew it. I <laughs> knew it. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm a little adamant about that. I'm like, Man, look at the bearing edges. They're just, they're torn it's up. Yeah. Uh, and all of the drums, quite honestly, were, were that way because they take the bottom rims off for recording sessions or, or, or yeah. who knows how it all came together. But they all, the blonde kit, was, the edges are really, really chewed up on the bottom and the top, actually. Um So I had to uh, I think I sent you some pictures on that, John. I'm not sure if that's
0: Yeah, Yep. I'm if you want to take a
1: look at those. But uh, the floor, Tom, in particular, was really chewed up the top bearing edge, the bottom bearing edge. So uh, as a woodworker, I filled it in um, with some three part epoxy that uh, I've used a lot for furniture restoration. Um, And it it has a property. So it still sustains like wood and actually is wood sculpt wood. it's called. Hmm. And instead of cutting the edges on a, on a uh, router, um, I have a sanding, I have sanding blocks for different edges and 30 degree round over. I would just sand it out. My friend, Joe Montaneri helped me, uh, trusted in him to actually cut on the rotor on the router for the bass drum, the front oh. edge of the bass drum brim, uh, bearing edge. Sorry. Uh, he came in and assisted me on that. And, um, just, you know, got them back to where they really are going to, have a wide tuning range and and will sustain throughout a night. And he loved it. He absolutely loved it. Um, took all the lugs off, packed them with felt, made sure all the springs were operational. Um, and, uh, yeah, just really kept them going.
0: Yeah, man, we had a question and this, this is, this leads up to, I think, for, for a great question for you, Don, um, Anthony Cassina was asking what type of heads did Charlie prefer using on all his drums? And, uh, and, you know, and I'll just say, you know, most people know that he played the black dot heads, the the remote control sound heads for many, many years. I, by my recollection from about 75 on, he was using the black dots, even on the, on the black nitron set before he got to the blonde set, but then fast forward to Don McCauley's influence, 2019. What happens?
1: Well, he it was more so. I brought a, another drum in. I brought another floor tom in with a coated ambassador head, like he had done in the early seventies, as an extra floor and another bass drum, doing the same thing. And he says, "Well, let's try that on these drums because we're going into the studio." And he said, "Let's try the the coated ambassadors." Um, went into Henson Studios to record some stuff, and he. I said, sure, let's go for it. I kept the same exact black dots that we had on there <laughs> to make sure We could put them right back on. Uh, we used them in the studio. He loved them. I, I suspected we we're going to switch back for the tour coming up. He says, no, let's leave them on for the tour. <laughs> and uh, I says, okay, it's up to you. Of course, it's your thing. And they sound wonderful. But he yeah. said, there's my floor, Tom. My floor, Tom is back. That was mm-hmm. his, that was his, you know, answer to that it was, There's the floor time. It's it's got all the the note all the tone that I want again, Um, and he loved it. You know, there's nothing like the 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 coded uh, the uh, the black dots for projection. They sound great in a stadium. They really project, but coming from a studio to go into it into a, a live show, you know, they sound they both sound great.
0: Yeah, yeah. They. I mean, I saw you that tour, and they they sounded so great. They. And you could hear. I mean, even with all the, the processing and you know, drums in a big stadium, you can get, any drum to sound really great.
1: Yeah, but there's none of that. Not with us.
0: Uh, well, Dave that Natal, it,
1: yeah, Dave Natal. Yeah, Dave who is the front house engineer, uh, is a drummer, and he'll have none of that. There's no. There's barely any limiting, and there's no gating. There's nothing. It's what we put into the microphone is what you hear out front. Okay. And that's yep. that's very powerful. So you do hear the difference in in the heads. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, you 2019 do
1: 2018 tour. You hear the sound differently than you do 2018 tour.
0: Yeah. And Anthony asked about the uh, the resonance side, and those were clear ambassadors.
1: They were starting in 2012, actually. Okay. And Natal, Dave Natal, had a lot to do with that. He said, "I want a little more sustain in the drums." So they took off the black dots on the bottom. But he's like that's what Tony Williams did. Why would we want to change it? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's always about what what another jazz drummer has d- done, you know.
0: I want to do it he Yeah. Oh, that's great. I know. I know. Can't go wrong, you know, when you copy Tony's head set up. I mean, that's, yeah. that's okay, but sure, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's great. Outstanding. Mm-hmm. Uh and and Rich, you you talked about last time, you know, we talked about the whole uh, UFIP China, you know, the China thing continues to be such a um, interesting subject for people, you know, like when he started using it, um, you know, I I know there's uh, Todd, Todd Little, who's on the Facebook appreciation page, who might be watching this right now. I don't, I'm looking to see, I don't see him here, but he could be watching. Uh, We've talked about it at different times about Charlie using a Pisces China. And my guess is it might have it might have been during when the time you were selling them UFIP Chinas or maybe before that, but before, yeah. Before. Okay. And I speculate that maybe speculated that maybe they were in Europe and he had cracked the UFIP and couldn't get a replacement. And Chuch might have gone out and bought a paiste somewhere to, at a drum shop, you know, which were they were plentiful in those yeah. days. But um yeah, this know, is you've got some,
2: from the previous episode that I supplied to you that shows Charlie playing a maple kit with the Rogers hardware. And there's a uh, pasty China type, right? Where the UFIPs are now, you know, I believe the chicken came before the egg on that one. I think he used the pasties first, liked what they did, but then he heard the UFIPs and liked them better. I think that's what happened. That's my theory. Anyways. I don't know that for Mm -hmm. sure.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know. I just, I remember seeing, I know that the, the first time I saw him using one, um in 78 on the some girls tour mm-hmm. um i didn't know what it was until i saw finally saw a photo a sort of close-up photo and, and, it, and it was a U-Fit. but it doesn't mean that he didn't use the paisley before it and then yeah. yeah yeah who knows but who
2: knows what um, uh, what happened or how they got switched over from one to the other yeah, yeah. when i met yeah. him in 1989 he was thoroughly using a fit from that point on i never saw him ever deviate from that never saw him change yeah you know yeah yeah
1: The weights weights on those symbols have stayed the same relatively. Um, The weights that we would order from uh, Alberto Mm -hmm. at UFIP were about 1,300 grams. And I think the older ones that I saw, I weighed those as well. I weighed all the the series of symbols, even back to the Sky Blue Pearl kit, stuff that went with those. Mm -hmm. But the the UFIPs were roughly around 1,200 to 1,300 grams throughout all of those years. So okay. it was, it, he liked that sound. And I'm not sure about the pisties. I have not weighed those um, or done sound files of them to match them up, but it, 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 they're very similar, but the UFIPs have just a different sound.
0: You know? Yeah, different
1: sound. Uh, yeah different. exactly. Yeah. yeah.
0: And that, that explains it, Don, because I think uh, you're right. I think, you know, knowing how that works, that if you can get in that same range, yes. you're going to get pretty close sound wise.
1: Yeah. Relatively. Yeah. 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 In the studio, I think he would go for a little lighter symbol, And then on the shows, it'd be a little heavier. Yeah. 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 Well, that was
2: one of the jobs that was given to me by Chooch. He asked me, he says, you know, Rich, we need another China type. The one that Charlie's got, it's broken, you know? And so when I met him in 1989, like I said, not longer after I met him and we delivered that drum, I started to get more and more job uh, little tasks to be given to me by Chooch. And he would have me order one symbol at a time from UFIT. And we never specified anything other than it was an 18-inch Chinese type. And uh, we would pretty much get the same symbol every time. It would cost them like $500 a symbol to get them. And we had to wait and get customs and pay taxes on them. And it was uh, was crazy. That's one of them right there, you know. That one's broken, as you can see, as they all are probably. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We went for a number of years like that, uh, buying one at a time, those symbols. And finally, you know, I was like, Charlie, I mean, when I went to Chooch, I said, Chooch, this is crazy, man. You can get these things for free you know and at that time i um i this was about 1994 just before the voodoo uh, lounge tour i i called up the uh, gentleman i had just by chance met this guy named alex who was the um the director of a company that was taking over the distribution of UFIP, and he had bought some blue vista light Ludwigs for me and he's and he had on his letterhead you know president of distribution and we do ufit oh great so I, I uh, faxed him at that time. That's back in the days of fax. And I said, hey, can we get some kind of like limited endorsement of UFIPs for Charlie? And uh, he was like, no problem. Great. You know, so uh, we put together an order of symbols, and they sent like 60 of those Chinese symbols. Uh, they arrived in Washington, D.C. at the JFK Stadium where they're rehearsing in uh, August of 1994. And they sent a whole pile of them. And this is one of those symbols uh, that I have today. And um, they went through all those symbols and the only Charlie only picked out two of them. And we really weren't specifying what kind of weight or whatever. So they got all kinds of different ones. They got some of the ones that kind of had that burnished, what they call a natural sound look. Mm-hmm. And then the other ones were your typical, like an azilgen, just a standard brass look, you know. And he just picked out two of them, and got, he said, "I don't want the rest of them," you know. And I was, a, I was, a, as a gift for putting this all together, I was given this one, and then the one behind me up on the wall, which is signed by Charlie, you know. And from that point on, he was had a silent endorsement with you as he did right up till this year, and you know. Mm-hmm. And Don was able to. I think when Don came on, he was able to specify the weight and the size and the type of symbol he got because. Prior to that, we were just getting whatever the natural sounds or the, nat, you know, some had rivets like this one and some were just a plane and he would just use whatever, you know. And uh, one of the things that happened at that 1994, when we got those UFIPs, uh, he had one of the natural sound symbols and it had a big chunk broken out of it. And so we had it, uh, down, there's a, there's a metal shop here in Annapolis and we took that symbol down and he'd cut the, cut the cut, the, uh, the, the, the break out of it and put like a U shaped cut into it. And Charlie used it for like another week and then it just fell apart. You know? <laughs> yeah. Somewhere yeah. in Don's collection, you're gonna see that one with a kind of a big U in it, you know, and it's a yeah. natural sound one with the brown looking symbols. <laughs> he, good. Ta- yeah. yeah,
0: he's ta- Yeah, he's talked about how, you know, like <laughs> how that he he used to say to me, you know, I almost like defending his position for not wanting to try a Zildjian China, he'd say, you know, the UFIPs have the sound or something, he'd say, but they do split, you know, I, they, they, <laughs> I split them pretty quick. He said, and I can only drill them so much, you know, and then they're, and then they're gone. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, and I would always tell him, like, look, I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm, I'm just trying to offer if, if, if we ever landed on one that you liked and Don, you know, to your expertise, like if we had landed on one that was, that was a certain gram weight, I, you know, I, I would have then said, you know, we can, we can get you a quantity of these or something, but I never mm-hmm. wanted to ever, sure. you know, I, I respected that he, I think part of it was he he looked up and, and saw that symbol that he knew and, and mm-hmm. recognized and that that's was, it made, yeah he was comfortable with it and
1: exactly, exactly yeah that's the sound that he has and and he's he is uh, why change what's the reason to change it sounds great but Zildjian's sound fantastic on the hats they sound great on the 16 inch crash mm-hmm. and yeah. Uh, yeah they each one has its own placement I think I think that's a big part of it right there.
2: I think one of the reasons they broke also is because he played them like this instead of how a lot of guys put them upside down. He always played them like this and it puts a lot of pressure on the edge there. And I think it's a, it destroyed, well, not destroyed, but it's easier to crack that way.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and also you're right. And I, and I think just from a background of working in a symbol company, and I used to tell people this all the time that played Chinese symbols, the edge itself, there's a stress point on there to, you know, as, as you point out, Richard, that, that's sort of a natural stress point for a symbol to crack. But when you play it as much as Charlie did, um, which he did, he played it really as his main crash and it often as a ride symbol too. You see him playing the groove on that thing, you know, eighth note riding. And, uh, and sometimes he'd play it like a, like a jazz. And sometimes he'd whack the shit out of it, you know? So you you could, you could (laughs) understand why. (laughs) Yeah. He didn't hold back.
1: I get it. He was a powerful, he was a powerful hitter. If you mm, wanted to yeah. to he he'd, nice, delicate, delicate touch, but he could certainly lay in if you wanted to. And uh,
0: yeah,
1: his UFIP over to the side to his stage right side um, is a swish. And that was what he called the crowd war. You know, <laughs> he wouldn't really crash on that. He would just ride on it. And mm. that was much more of that was where the what he called the crowd war it was much more simple. Yeah. Like
0: Hey, hey, Don! Can you talk a little bit about the the legendary flat ride that eighteen-inch Italian yeah, yeah. flat ride B eight
1: B eight material uh, B eight material yeah uh, mm-hmm.
0: and for
1: years you know everybody's been trying to figure out what it is and as you know there was a there is uh, a crack it's about three quarters long from the center hole out and I've marked where it where I when I first came on in two thousand twelve and to see if it had you know, carried, traveled it on. It hasn't. Um, the only time you really hear that crack is when you moonlight mile, he'll play the, the mallets. And that's when you would have heard that rumble, a little bit yeah. of distressing metals uh, together. We talked about getting it fixed, but I, I was way against it because it's going to change the sound. You can braise it, and all that, but it's going to change the sound. He he found that, as we know, in 78 mm. in Paris with Chooch. And he was just yep. coming out of a session with uh, with him and they were walking through the streets of Paris out of uh, Pathé Marconi. And they went over to the um, uh, Battery uh, Drum Shop. Le- yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? I forgot. Yeah, I Le went Battery. There. Yeah. Yeah. And I went there and I mm-hmm. talked to the owner and, and tried to retrace those steps and uh, <laughs> see if I could find some kind of receipt uh, or any knowledge at all. And the guy that I talked to was the owner and he remembers the day that it was purchased. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I said, so what was it? What kind of symbol was it? And at that point I'd already seen uh, our, our lighting director had put different colored lights on the symbol. I'd had them put all sorts of different colors in there throughout the whole spectrum of their, their light spectrum. And it was a certain kind of greenish Amber color would reflect what we saw was called the golden bell. And mm-hmm. It's just a round emblem. And it just, Barely came through. Round it said Golden Bell, um, uh, eighteen flat or seventeen point fifty six or something like that. Flat ride um, in red markings. So I started retracing that. And who's going to find? You know, who's going to tell me what the Golden Bell was? We couldn't find anything about Golden Bell. Mm. Went through everybody at UFIP, Nobody could come up with anything in their in their um, old history. I uh, started talking to a couple other people. We've determined. That, uh, it was a, a, a Tosco, that it was a Tosca, that it was a Tosca, that it was a cheaper-made symbol.
0: Yeah,
1: and that's what it is. Um, there's a guy named Luca Luca Luciano, an Italian guy. Mm-hmm. who You know, he kind of really gets into the Italian symbols. Uh, he helped kind of determine that quite a bit. I went, mm-hmm. I had, uh, I went through a lot of different channels to find out, and that's what we've we've seen. We still haven't seen the logo materialize anywhere, the golden bell logo. Mm-hmm. But that was determined that it was a Tosca because um, that style of symbol, the weight, I've actually had it scanned um, on the on the best um, 3D scanner you can get. Mm-hmm. We've got the weights of it, we've got photos of, you know, images of the exact grooves, everything. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's a, it's a Tosca.
0: Yeah. yeah and it and it is as charlie has said it's a one-off too you know it's, it's yeah it really and, is and they did Quite a million of those. them yeah yeah but and they they did exactly. make nice symbols you know tosco they they were yeah. you know one of the respected uh italian companies and mm-hmm. um and kind of known for for like lower price b8 type stuff yep but, but made some really nice symbols
1: i had uh roberto spizzicino's uh son and his widow come out in italy as as well as uh, Alberto uh from UFIP to just kind of see if any of them knew anything about it and uh, if Roberto might have done something because he worked for a lot of different companies um uh, and they they had no recollection of the uh, mm. golden bell chased yeah chased down a lot of a lot of theories
0: yeah yeah boy he yeah he he was such a man of mystery when it came to that stuff yeah. you know it was
1: <laughs> yeah yeah but it was supposedly, it was in the used bin. At the right. Yep. Yeah. 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 He, he didn't like old, he didn't like new shoes and he didn't like new symbols. So.
0: Mm. I, I I just, I, I know. I love that story, how he, he found it. simon and Chooch found it secondhand. Yeah. You know, and yeah. Yeah. Bombed out of their heads, as you he said.
1: That's exactly <laughs> it. Yeah. 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 They're on a break oh, from the tattoo and those guys are you know overdubbing or something like let's get out of here and let's go for a walk, you
0: know.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what he told uh, me.
0: Yeah. That's so great. That's so great. Oh man. Well, you know, I I I want to have you guys tell some more um stories, maybe just to Richard, you know, like share share some more stories about yeah uh, working with Chooch and Charlie and and uh this is so great.
2: Well, uh, probably the next thing that happened uh, after I first met them in 1989, uh, they finished the Steel Wheels Tour, which went on forever. I mean, it just kept coming back and went to Europe and then back to America. It went on for like two years. And when they finally finished uh, in 1992, Charlie wanted to jump back into his favorite thing to do, which is the jazz, his jazz trios, his jazz tentets, his jazz orchestra. And uh, if we go back to 1986, he had this thing that he did with Charlie Watts Orchestra. And yeah. um, this was an, ex- I, I wouldn't call it an experiment, it was just something that he was dying to do. You know, he just loved jazz and he wanted to play jazz in a big band. And the Charlie Watts Orchestra was a big ass band, you know, and they had a horn section and strings and you name it, they had everything in there. And uh, if you look in this uh, this tour program, I, got, I was given to this by Chooch, there's some little pictures of the, they had three drummers in the band, first of all, (laughs) which is kind of crazy, but Charlie's playing like a kind of a hodgepodge of what looks like either a Heyman or a, or a Camco bass drum. And then his eight by 12 and, and then some kind of um, a Chinese uh, symbol on a rivets, you know, and stuff. And uh, so he would do these projects from time to time. And uh, a lot of times he would just throw together a drum set and, and play, and uh, when I made him met him in 1989, um, 1992 rolled around, and they were finally off and done. They were like, "Okay, we're going to do another show, another album." And then they came out with this uh, this is tribute to Charlie Parker with strings. They came out with this album, and then if you look at the cover of this, it's got a picture of uh, Charlie playing, the, uh, sitting there with a the saxophone and a Pearl drum set. God forbid. Yeah you know <laughs> and remember, uh, yeah yeah it's crazy and he was they were actually renting that pearl kit not only for the photographs but for the shows when i went to see him you know and i ended up at the um 1992 at the blue note uh restaurant in new york city and they were playing there and he was using this you know rental drum kit you know and it was just it just was not I, you know he just wasn't loving it you know i mean he just did he was loving playing with the band but he was not loving the kit you know and so, uh, and I, I think originally when I first met him, I told you about the green sparkle kit that I supplied for him. I originally think that he wanted to use that for the jazz project, but that was just not gonna work because it it had a 22 inch bass drum, which was much too big for what his heroes played. You know, Charlie was a big fan of Elvin Bishop, I mean, Elvin Bishop, Elvin Jones and uh, Tony Williams and guys like that. And they all had little 18 inch bass drums and that's what he wanted, you know? So what he did is he, um, Contact me and says, okay, we need to find a Gretsch jazz, jazz drum set. So, uh, a good friend of mine, Tommy Taylor, who plays with the Eric Johnson Band and at that time was still playing with uh, Chris Cro- uh, Christopher Cross.
0: Oh, sure. And Tommy Taylor. Tommy yeah. is a
2: big, big collector from down in Austin, Texas. And we, we would deal, do a lot of horse trading. He would buy drums from me, and I'd buy drums from him. And I remember a couple of months earlier, he said, oh, I've got this old uh, Gretsch drum set with an 18-inch bass drum. I picked it up on the road, like in North Carolina. And uh, I was like, oh, man, that'd be perfect. So we made a deal, and he shipped it up to me. And then um, I shipped it up to a guy in Canada named Seppo Salmanen. And uh, Seppo has a company called TRS Drum Company. And uh, I supplied you with some pictures earlier of Seppo with that drum kit. And when they got the drum kit, they took it to Charlie and uh, the kit was pretty beat up. It, it had like the, the floor tom had uh, brakes in a pearl and it had uh, extra holes on the bass drum and extra had Rogers mounts on there. And Charlie uh, was just not really crazy about the way it looked, you know. So uh so I shipped it with the Seppo and Seppo rewrapped it in brand new black nitron and redid the hoops filled in the holes for the garage's hardware and put the uh put the drums back together and then he got to deliver them and that picture of his is of Seppo at the uh, Toronto um the um on Young Street there's a place called the Crescent School and he delivered it to rehearsal there and this would be about 1994 when this happened by the time it all came together uh, and so uh, Charlie got the drums, that, but that was right around the time they were rehearsing for Voodoo Lounge. And that's what you're seeing there is behind the, the rehearsal room in the back room at, at the Voodoo Lounge rehearsal hall. That's Seppo. Uh, and you can see he's got the, the Swimmedic hi-hat. He's got the yeah. Hercules uh, snare stand. He's got one of the Gretsch tech wear stands. And I think he has one of the either the Zildjans or the UFIPs up on the ride cymbal there. And uh, and Charlie, you know, got to check it out. And uh, that set basically came with a fourteen by eighteen bass drum, an eight by twelve ride tom, a fourteen by fourteen floor, and a sixteen by sixteen floor, plus a matching five and a half by fourteen name band snare drum, all in round badge. And once Charlie got that set, he used that for quite a while. And then, like John said, later on um, in the in the early two thousand ten. 12 whatever that was he started using different drum kits for his jazz projects and i know that steve maxwell supplied him with an identical kit but it was a newer gretsch classic or made in usa uh, series kit that was in the same finish right so yeah and so when when you look at the um the flyer for the this is from the blue note this is the flyer that they used for the charlie watts 10 tech from the blue note and also when they performed at the Ronnie Scott's in London, they used the same uh, flyer here. And uh, not too long after that, they did an article uh, on Rhythm Magazine and uh, and he's featured in this magazine with that black drum set after it's been all nice and clean and polished and, and re- refinished and, and he used that for quite some time. So I was really happy to be part of that. But again, I didn't do any of the actual recovering. All I did was I located the set brought it to Maryland, shipped it up to Toronto, had Seppo work on it. So when I asked Charlie about it not too long ago, um, he basically thought that Seppo had brought on the kit. He said, oh, I got that from some guy in Canada. I said, well, actually, you got that from me, from, <laughs> from Tommy Taylor. And uh, Seppo did all work. So when Seppo delivered it, Charlie associated the, the purchase of that kit with Seppo, thinking that Seppo had got it. But CEPO had d- done a magical, wonderful job of refinishing that kit. And that's still in the collection today, you know, so I'm really, really glad uh, to see that that's still being used. And you'll see it in all kinds of the different Charlie Watts uh, CDs that came out, the Tentet CD. Uh, all these CDs have uh, Charlie playing the black kit for many years. And then more recently when he did the shows at the Iridium and then he did some shows at Ronnie Scott's, those were all with different kits uh, that the uh, that either Steve Maxwell or Don was able to put together for him. I don't think he really used that that kit anymore. But he, I know he was really happy with it when he got it. He was just had a big smile on his face.
1: With that kit, actually, that little that little black kit, mm-hmm. uh, there's there's very little space to set up anything within mm-hmm. his uh, room, so to say mm-hmm. the locker, and uh, that's the only kit that I set up just so he could could play around a little bit. You know, that's the that's the one we set up for that. No. It sounds great. I pitched it up really high, so we can just have fun with it. Very different than what yeah. he would have on a rock and roll setup, or a right? you know, jazz tuning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ex- exactly. Yeah, it, and uh, yeah, it was. He's like, "Well, I don't have my, I don't have the proper <laughs> suit to play that kit." <laughs> but he sat down anyways and played it. You know? It's a really, a really great sounding kit. Right
2: there. This really is the cool. suit for that kit, by the way. On the yes. cover, i the magazine. this suit that he had custom made to play. Exactly. But he's very particular. He was playing that kit he had to be wearing this suit, you know? So I thought that was pretty interesting. That's a picture of the drum set before it was recovered, when it was still at my house. Yeah. And you can see they're scratched up and pretty chewed up. Great sounding, yeah. but yeah. in need of a lot of love, you know? They were
1: pretty messed a, up. Yeah, it's a very cool set. Yeah.
0: yeah. I'm going to find that picture again um, of Seppo sitting behind it, because oh yeah, at closer inspection, mm-hmm. if I can find that in my... um. In my shared photos. Let's see, let's see, let's see. Well, I managed to find you. The-
2: Charlie went back to using a snare stand to hold the tom-tom because originally when we uh, redid it, I don't know if it had a, a, a clip mount on it. I don't know if that got put back on it at some other point. But you can see it in this picture: the real constant clip mounts there on the bass drum. I don't know if that was put back on. Because uh, he generally liked to use the setup with a snare stand.
1: I don't believe it, it. Yeah, I don't believe it is. I think it's just yeah. just the bass drum. It's
0: um,
2: Yeah, the, the picture of the Tentet cover. You can see the snare stand, those Hercules uh, or uh, Buck Rogers snare stands being used. Yeah, there's sepo.
0: Yeah. So you know what I'm thinking, looking at that ride cymbal? Mm-hmm. When I saw Charlie um, in 97 on the B kit, he was using a Canadian K Zildjian ride cymbal. Mm-hmm. that looked like it was from the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it was either a 20 or a 22. I think it was a 20. And that, you know, I could be totally wrong, but that the shape of that, the flat profile of that ride yeah. symbol, um, it could be the angle, but that looks like a, a mm-hmm. K Zildjian, like a a, a more modern, uh, not a Zildjian USA, but a Canadian K. Yep. More like that. the old Turkish ones, yeah.
1: You can sort of tell by the color of the symbol too, the way it...
0: Yeah, yeah. 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 And, you know, it would make sense. I mean, he, he could have picked it up while he was there in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, they were, you know, they were still kind of around at that time. Um, yeah, very interesting to see this. Yeah. And and hear the history of how that, you know, I'd, I've seen this, this kit, Richard, a million times in different photos. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool to hear the backstory on it.
2: Yeah. Well, thank God for Tommy, because he came up with it. I was like, where am I going to find the Gritch kit with an 18-inch base from And I had just talked to Tommy a few months before about that. And he was like, I got this kit. And I was like, ah, <laughs> so it just kind of all <laughs> worked out. It all came together. And yeah, there it is. Wow.
0: Very, very cool. Yeah. Well, I'm going we- any... to
2: see this up to the B stage. You ready for that yet?
0: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure, all right. Is there any questions we'll, we'll keep, yeah, we'll keep on pressing on.
2: All right. Yeah. Cause uh, the, the B stage was a whole nother story again. Uh, Chooch calling me up in, uh, uh, I think it was April or May of 1997. And I thought, every time we'd finish a tour, a different, supplying a drum set or whatever, I thought, okay, I'm done. They've gotten everything they've ever possibly could need for me. What else could they need? And when they
1: called up, when Chooch called Never up, it's, ending. It's never ending, Rick. Never ending, yeah. <laughs> We're going to keep calling you. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was very glad. I was always, yeah. like, whenever he would call, I was like, yes,
1: all right, you know?
2: Um He would call up uh, about this, uh, he called me up and originally in in May, he said, oh, we need to find like a vintage drum set, Gretsch, like with a 22, you know, 13, 16 and like an anniversary sparkle. That's what he had his mind set on. And uh, we looked around, couldn't find any. And after a while, I found a couple of different candidates and sent pictures up to Chooch. And by that time, this was probably June or July or something like that of 1997. They had changed their, It kept on changing, you know. And then they had landed on the idea of getting the kit, basically a replica of the maple kit that, he, that he's famous for using. He says, yeah, we want to get a, a rep, the same kit, same size, same vintage round badge. And I was like, oh, boy, we're going to do another refinish job here, you know. So, um, And then what happened is that uh, we had to find, you know, the drums and the shells and, and find the right people to get all the work done. Because by this point, I wasn't using Ward Wilson anymore because he, he'd stopped working. He'd gone on to a different profession he wasn't restoring drums so um i was able to call up my friend steve bedalamet who lives in detroit and um and get get him to do the the finish work and so the shells were found for us by a guy named blair Holbin. blair found a 22 a 12 and a 16 all six ply round bad shells that were in good condition they had extra holes from the, the rail consulates and stuff. And we shipped them over to Jack Lawton over in Pennsylvania at Sunbury, Pennsylvania, of the Lawton Drum Company. And Jack basically stripped and sanded the drums, plugged all the holes on the bass drum and the tom toms, because we were we were definitely going to go for a mounted tom on a snare stand. We were not going to have any mounts on the bass drum for anything else. And so uh, and then once Jack was finished preparing the drums and plugging the holes, he shipped them to Steve. Steve had a professional paint shop uh, do the shells in a, a clear maple finish. And then, uh, we were, we were basically given the task of delivering them. So I, I drew, uh, flew out to Detroit in September and this all came together in a very short period of time over just a couple of weeks to get everything finally, when we finally got the go ahead to go the green light to do this job, it all, all came together in about two or three weeks. It was a really fast kind of a rush job. Because they were doing rehearsals in Mont and uh, in Toyota, um, Toyota uh, Toronto,
0: Toronto, yeah,
2: in uh, September, you know, and they were like, "We need the drums for Toronto. We're going to do the B stage." (laughs) I'm like, "Oh my god!" And Steve, my god, he was able to pull it off, man. Steve Badalamenti, I got to hand it to him, man. He put it all together, and uh, we 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 wanted to make sure we had the right heads on there, the right rims. We got the black dots, but one of the things that we couldn't find was at that time Charlie was using a clear. 22-inch and um, uh, Evans hydraulic head on the batter side of that bass drum. And he, you know, she was we got to have the hydraulic head. You know, I'm like, and it was the first version of it with the white collar. I'm like, my God, yeah. where are we going to find this thing? And somebody in, in my friend's neighborhood was throwing away a Ludwig blue Vistalite kit. And on that kit, the 22-inch bass drum, it had the clear Vistalite, I mean, the clear Evans drum head on it, but it was covered. In duct tape all over it, up and down and top to bottom. I was like, "Oh my god!" But I could see when I flipped it on the backside that the head was perfectly intact. I don't know why they put the stuff on. You know, this is, goes back to the seventies when was, people were. It was traffic. probably
0: ringing too much.
2: Yeah, <laughs> right. So they <laughs> take the crap out of it. It had duct tape everywhere. So I spent like a whole day, you know, getting the duct tape off and then using a, a remover, and I got it so it looked brand new. Man, it still had the hydraulic uh, logo on it. So right. And so I shipped that up to Steve. He put it on the drum head and then we hopped in his, his uh, car and we drove up to uh, from Detroit over the bridge to Windsor, Ontario, uh, into um, t- uh, Toronto, to the uh, Crescent School, which is on Yonge Street. And, uh, and we were ushered in. It was all these people around there trying to get in. They wanted to hear the Stones and the Stones were rehearsing in there. And we were ushered into this room where this it was just basically the stuff, the, the five stones, and a couple of the backup singers, and, um, and one or two guitar techs, you know, Pierre was there, Chooch was there, and one or one other guy was there, and the stones were practicing all their songs. So we set the drums up in the side room, Charlie came out of the rehearsal, hall, that same side room that you saw Seppo, we went mm-hmm. into that side room, it was Charlie's storage area. And so yeah. we brought the drums, set them all up there and, and he had some stands and pedals. And, Charlie sat down and started playing them. He just absolutely loved them. He was really happy for that. And uh, and a lot of people got to see the band in a new way because you had the main stage, which had the vintage Gretsch kit. And now you had this B stage out in the middle of the auditorium with the B stage kit, which was an identical replica. And it was just such an amazing thing. And then we were invited next day to go to the uh, Air Canada. They had a massive airplane hangar where they had set up the entire stage of the stones with all the equipment overnight. They had brought all the equipment over from rehearsal, set it all up there with all the PA and the lights and the bombs. And uh, they had set up the B stage and it was on a hydraulic riser. It would come up with all the equipment on there. And so we got to watch them practice with the B stage. And that was the first time that drum set got set up tuned, microphoned and, and ready to go. And it was just such a, a real uh exciting time to be there you know to actually get to witness all this guests, oh, yeah. you know and,
0: and to be such a big part of that absolutely it yeah. must have been a thrill i i remember seeing that kit and my, mm. my mind being blown because it was such a close replica i mean yeah you know don you know charlie's main kit intimately you can't you can't replicate those nah. you know those those uh battle scars that are all over Charlie's main kit. But but that replica kit was amazing to look at. Like it was just so spot on.
1: But so the lacquer finish, that's where you, that's where it really comes in. I think with the b stage mm-hmm. kit, the lacquer finish is a little bit of a tint of kind of a amber orange color. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to get it. Like you say, Rich, you had a very short period of time to work and get mm-hmm. that kit ready. I, I know, mm-hmm. heard some intimate stories about that, but <laughs> it, it was quick. And you, to get that distressed finish from a uh, elite 50s kit. Mm. Yeah. Nearly impossible. So it was a great job. You guys did a great, great job at it. Thank great you. Job. Look, How does yeah. that kit compare to the main kit, the sound ta-
2: sound wise? I've never had Very it side by side.
1: Very different. Very That's different. What I yeah. They both sound great. They both sound excellent, but the B stage kit has its own thing. Well, it's a 13, 13, 16, 22, where his is a 12, 16, 22. Yeah. Oh, I thought yeah. we had put a 12 for that kit. For uh, the B stage kit. Pretty sure it's a 13, I think it's a 13. It? but but it sounds great. I've used it. We've had it uh, at a backstage rehearsal for one one run, um, and it sounds good. sounds really good. The bass drum sounds actually really fantastic on that one. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I've
2: seen some pictures of them recording in the studio where they brought that kid in for some recording sessions, and it's also been used in as, a a second,
1: of as a secondary recording. Yeah. Player. Yeah. yeah. For, for a different setup, different tuning. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Kind of like they did on the Voodoo Lounge tour, they would have the main kit already mic'd up and EQ'd. Yep. So when they wanted to do something different, when they set up in the hallway at the, for the Voodoo Lounge album, they set up the uh, that bass drum, that uh, my first piece of business, and they set up right. like one of Charlie's backup snare drums.
1: You know, very so, different
0: sound, very different
1: mic technique, everything about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Good to have a lot of tools on hand. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah.
0: Hey Don, our friend Brian County is watching right now. He, oh hey he's Brian. Enjoying this. Hey man. Shout out to our friend Brian, local local guy here, local drummer, yeah. local
1: local fan, yeah, yeah.
0: good guy. And uh, and have a question for Don from uh, Anthony Amodio, who's asking if you can maybe just talk a little bit about the, the tech process for setting up Charlie's drums, like as far as um, how Charlie'd like to have his gear to be set up: tape on the carpet, uh, sharpie on the stands. What mm-hmm. what tricks of the trade you might have uh, implored to do that.
1: What he would like to do, and then what you know, uh, the, the things that he, he he wanted to make sure of that is that everything was uh, angled properly, the way he wanted it properly. And uh, you know, early on in the '70s, he had his rack tom facing kind of like what Steve Jordan is doing now, where it, it, the angle of the rack tom is facing stage right. You know, yeah, up stage yeah. right, and you're kind of going backwards. Where he had his, what he wanted later on was that his 12 inch rack tom was really facing straight at him uh i think it was because he did so many hits on the rack tom rim mm-hmm. and the floor tom rim but it wasn't always hitting in the center of the drum he was always he kind of like bounced off of the rim a lot mm-hmm. so the rim of the rack tom was very very important and to make sure in the basket that it was sitting in it wasn't getting choked it wasn't getting closed up so that it had a lot of right. sustain, tons of sustain and uh um, yeah with the floor tom the same thing he thought it 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 didn't ring enough we don't put any muting on whatsoever there's no Mm -hmm. those gels or any gaff tape there's nothing like that it's all wide open so that it rings as much as possible and um so that was a big big part for him he didn't want his bass drum to be flat he wanted to have some note he wanted to have a yeah you know something to Reflect off of him. It's very similar to the '60s sound. He mm. wanted that reflection and and note in the room, so to say. Um, little things like that. Clean. Yeah. <laughs> Carpet very clean. But he wasn't. He didn't demand these things. It's just that it's Charlie Watts. So you're going to do your very best to do, mm. you know, to get it to get it right, and for him to s- feel super comfortable. Um, so, but as far as any little tricks or techniques i don't think he changed much at all of his setup so you know you introduce things and you put like vince wilburn had brought in this gorgeous symbol on the left hand side stage left which was the crash of doom that was a huge addition so Mm -hmm. finding space for that on your stage left side riser was a huge thing we had to move everything over one full itch yeah (laughs) to the right that's a huge deal (laughs) it's a huge Huge deal deal. But, you know, as far as like spike marks on his uh, carpet, things like that, there were no tape marks, nothing. It was all indents to where the, the stands and the drums were placed. Um, so it was you know, there's no, no uh, reflective tape when the lights are hitting it, things like that. Um, I think his biggest thing, he just trusted me to, to make sure it sounded great. But his biggest thing was let's try different snare drums because he's known for his snare drum sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, is hi hat and snare drum sound I should say. But the snare was always the big thing.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: You know, is is it is it uh is there enough, is, is it the right tuning? Is it is it too ringy? Is it too high pitched? Mm-hmm. Um we tried a few different things. Studio, of course, was a little bit more detailed, but live we just sound we found a great sound, stuck with it. Yeah. Um, once you found something you like, you stick with it. I think that's his yeah. big thing because he can pull notes out of anything mm. i've seen him pull notes out of drums that were rented drums or like, <laughs> like the jazz gig that we he would go sit in with who knows what he's going to be playing i right. just found the tone you know? yeah. as long as the angles were right that's what it was yeah
0: big. and that dw snare you're talking about that he got in 2013 the tongue yes. logo that i mean he stuck with that all those years that probably he'd be using that now most likely. Right. I mean, would yeah. You, would
1: you, yeah, 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 yeah. At least to finish off the, um, the no filter tour, that's for sure. Yeah, at least yeah. to finish that up, John good handed it to me in 2013 and it just sounded excellent, uh, right away. Didn't have to do too much. I pitched it up a little higher, uh, loosened the bottom heads a little bit more near the snare beds so that it didn't have as much buzz on the snare and let it open up. So the yeah. bottom head was a little looser, um, than normal, still pitched higher than the top. But also the way he hit that, um, I think, was it Kenny Jones or, or might have been talking about how he saw um, him hitting always in the direct center? I'm not sure if that was Kenny or if that was
0: um, Simon yeah, Kerr. It might have, have been Simon. Si- yeah, it might have been Simon. I-
1: but So he was doing that early on, and there's heads which show that you know, there's a wear mark in the very center. But he actually hit a lot of times up on, like let's just say, the 11 o'clock area of the drum. And he would hit that with the rim, to get the tone of the head, the rim, and, and the wood. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Timbale—it's like almost a Timbali sound.
0: Yeah. So I would see yeah. a lot
1: of those marks. He'd come down, hit, drag, lift back up, hit, drag, lift back up, and he mute the snare. So try that at home, kids. But you're never, yeah. you're never going to get that sound.
0: And would would he do that? Would would that be like on a on a more sort of ballad type thing? Or like would or could he would he do that in up tempo songs? Up tempo well? stuff.
1: Almost every song. Uh Almost the ballad right. stuff, honestly, you know, king of the ballads, playing the king of he would hit that more in the center. Let yeah. the drum really ring and be a little lower tone in the center. Really get the for, yeah, for ballads. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, Angie. Angie's a big part of that.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The way he just yeah lay on that backbeat and 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 as far as tuning the toms it was bottom head a little tighter than the top head but mm-hmm.
1: yep. yep full how interval yep full interval and uh and, and tuned low enough on the rack tom but high enough for it would always be tuned for painted black that yes. would be that'd be the tom sound that go for and I'd mm-hmm. listen to it a b the two uh, just
0: geek out way too much. <laughs> but that's great information. I yeah. didn't know that. That's huge right there. That's- the Brown sugar, that.
1: and say, well, like brown sugar for the floor, Tom, those are reference points and to use for that. Uh, beast of burden, the bass drum sound for beast of burden. If we could try to get the kick and snare sound to sound like beast of burden. Those, were, those are the benchmarks that we try to set. Um, I don't know if he really ever knew I was doing much of that, but I hope, hope he heard it. You know? I was mm.
0: going to ask you exactly that. I went, did, did you ever discuss that with him? Not really. You just-
1: no we did we did, but, did
0: okay yeah
1: you know he didn't it's like all right sounds great
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah wow wow that's 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 great information man that's yeah,
1: yeah. a little more could, in depth in the studio than it was on the on the live shows rehearsals yeah. or studio. a little more in depth you know we, we get into pitching it correctly yeah so yeah
0: i mean and i'll just to jump back i mean the the as you say the tom the interval between the the rack tom and the floor tom is huge because Mm -hmm. so many of those songs his his rack tom is so big and full and deep Mm -hmm. but yet you can't let it get in the way of the floor tom obviously you've got to keep that separation between the two of them so yeah it's challenging to 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 have that
1: it was almost uh, always thought of as a motown rack tom and a rock and roll floor tom or (laughs) or or a krupa sing 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 floor Mm-hmm. yeah like the motown al jackson jr rack you know yeah. that's the, that was yeah. the the two again two reference points
0: mm-hmm.
1: steve jordan's doing the same thing in a yep. lot of
0: ways yeah
1: those are those are the feelings in which you know we're going for wow uh, sound wise yeah
0: great stuff for those
1: Thanks. drums there's a lot of other drums we can geek out on too but those, <laughs> those <laughs> drums that's what's going on yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> oh man well this is great I, i'm gonna just there's a, a question i'm gonna i'm gonna give to you i think don and then. Mm-hmm. um we're almost at like 90 minutes so i'm gonna wrap it up pretty i know and we we could go on all day and that's for sure and into the night um let's see there's where did that question go so charles t prim um you talk about the importance of the snare for charlie but charlie seemed especially aware of seeing that set as one instrument rather than an assembly of different pieces elvin jones preached that that's a great point yeah like a like a you know like a So, I mean, I don't know if you can, if there's a comment you could make in that regard or. Sure. They have to
1: sing together. They have to, they have to be in harmony together. That makes total sense. Um, It's just, I think that what was happening. Exactly. I think he's right on point there. Um, I think what, I guess what we would probably say is that the drums themselves normally would stay about the same tuning range where the snares always have different character. If it's a brass snare or metal snare or wood snare, Different thickness plies. Um, like right for now, let's just go into current state. Steve Jordan's using a Craviato single-ply Birch snare drum. It's a very different sounding snare drum than Charlie's 10-ply DW or even the collector's 10-ply um, 6-10. Mm. Six, six, so each drum, each drum is going to have its own character. But trying to marry them to the kit is very, very important. either works or it doesn't either works or it doesn't, but they can be completely different sounding snare drums, but it does. It has to, you have to think about it as a single unit. The whole drum kit has to sing together and be in harmony together. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and not to confuse or, or, and this is, is not uh, I can, I agree completely. And I, and I, I see what, what Charles is saying as well, but Mm -hmm. I've always looked at Charlie's kit almost like a, like an orchestra, like, like where everything works together as a, as a complete unit, but he could get the voices he could get from different parts of the drum kit and a small drum kit, I think are just, it's, he, he doesn't get enough credit or, or notoriety, I guess, you know, or appreciation for what he was able to draw from two Tom Toms, a bass drum, a snare drum, and most usually, you know, two cymbals and a hi-hat. Yeah. Um, and and and, and it, having it all come together as one voice is uh, sure. it was just a it was a work of art, you know.
1: And really. he might have changed his touch if he was sitting behind a kit that didn't sound like uh, somebody would let him borrow. I think it was Dave Green's uh, relative, I believe. I think that's how it is. We'll let him borrow uh, a Radio King kit, White Marine Pearl Radio King kit. It's mm-hmm. in London. We let him borrow that for some jazz gigs. And it had calfskin heads. So you're going to. Get a completely different song, sound. So where he hits and how he hits is going to be different because he wants it to sound very wants to sound like him. So yeah, I think it, he's just a master of that. He knew how to he knew how to get tone out of, out of yeah tone. absolutely yeah.
0: Last question: um, Anthony Amodio is asking about the legendary stick bag that Keith Moon gave to Charlie. I don't, do you know <laughs> the story behind that, Don? Did he did he tell you that story?
1: Uh yeah 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 um oh shit what is his name um mooney's tech oh his was name it bill harrison thank you very much
0: yes bill harrison yeah yeah
1: wonderful guy he passed away yeah. uh and before he did he brought he brought me a drum key and he brought a little tiny carpet scrap from when he had worked with charlie to help him with jazz stuff he worked with mooney and a bunch of other guys for years mm-hmm.
0: Yep. And he this yeah. little tiny
1: carpet scrap and he put it on his table. And Charlie always had that right there. And he bought me the key, he says, um, but Bill uh, had gotten that from Mooney in Mooney. had said, I want Charlie to have this. And it's uh, the guy who made it is a guy named Glenn Cronkite and it's a uh, reunion blues bag is what it is. I, I bought mm-hmm. a, some new ones from him. He's still, he's in San Francisco um, and, yeah he's still alive. He's still making these things, but um, beautiful uh, bags. Yeah. 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 They really are. Mm-hmm. Just bought a couple. Wow. Yeah. That's really incredible. I, it was, I just, I, it it was really, a gift from Mooney to, to Charlie.
0: That's, that's incredible. I have a quick Bill Harrison store If you'll, if you'll forgive me, I met him a few times. Lovely, lovely man. Gentleman. Really was. Yeah. yeah, mm-hmm. And, and he also worked for Ringo uh, mm-hmm. back, you know, in yeah. the day. And I think he was, he was the sort of UK Jeff Chonis. I think, yeah. In more recent years before Bill passed, he would
1: had a storage unit yeah. and would move items and be cartage for people. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yep. And so I was at the Stones office. This was probably in the early 2000s, maybe close to 20 years ago. And it was ahead of Charlie doing a, a stint at Ronnie Scott's with his his jazz group with the Tentet. And I was having lunch with him and Sherry. And Bill Harrison happened to be at the office that day as well. And they were discussing some logistics for the upcoming run at Ronnie Scott's. So we went out and had lunch at this place near the office. And it was, I think Tina Clark from Zildjian UK was there. And Bob, myself, Charlie, Sherry, and Bill. And so we go back to the office and we're all kind of getting ready to leave. And Charlie, with his sense of humor, he said, so what's, what's next, Bill? He said, you know, we just had lunch. You're going to have supper with Ringo. Yeah. yeah. And it was, <laughs> and bill Check to the stars. Yeah. yeah yeah and bill just started <laughs> laughing you know they were just kind of winding each other up it was a, you know yeah. it was a, a great um he had such a great sense of humor charlie you know and it, it was is. just he just kind of went you know so now catch you all I, the time yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> supper with ringo oh man <laughs> this is great life stuff, isn't guys. so bad is
1: it yeah
0: <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you so much for doing this. I, you know, again, I, I say this all the time, but we've, we, I feel like we've really just barely scraped the surface here. So <laughs> I may be uh, calling on you again in the not too distant future to, you know, continue this.
1: Well, down the road, you know, we'll, we'll do something that we can all kind of uh, contribute to and, and have fun with. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Maybe it takes some time, but yeah, we'll, we'll all be able to contribute again to something very cool. To Absolutely. honor, Charlie, to honor,
0: Charlie. Yeah, uh, uh yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm all in for that. So, thank you, thank you both so much, Don. Thank you for doing this on your day off on on yeah. the Stones tour and and uh, Richard. Glad to do it.
1: For, Glad to be here. Yeah. yeah,
0: Thank you, and Richard. Thanks for taking time out of your Sunday. Mm-hmm. um I'm going to go up and watch some football.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. It is today. Yeah. Thanks <laughs> uh, for putting so it together.
0: This is My awesome. pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you. This is great, and uh, and everybody, I'll put this up on YouTube later if you happen to miss it. Well, if you're watching this right now, you didn't miss it, but <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, gentlemen, don't go away. I'm gonna I'm, we'll say goodbye in the uh, in the room, but I'll sign off here from the live stream. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna um, I'm going to end the recording, and uh, thank thank you everybody for watching. A big hand for Don McCauley. Absolutely. and Richard King all right two great men two great friends and uh and thank you very much okay guys hang tight for one second